listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Uh, I am Jeff Tom. I am the co-facilitator of this panel. I'm, it started out with a resolution that we passed last year uh, on concerns about legal settlements and structured negotiation settlements that had a duration that was too short or that had um, settlement terms that perhaps weren't as ideal as we would like them to be. In fact, maybe way short of ideal. Uh, I am going to start the panel and we'll, we'll introduce the panelists as we go along in this case. But I'm going to start out the panel with the, um, with the author of the resolution, um, Steve Mendelson. Uh, who will give you a few opening remarks about what uh, impelled him to write this resolution and what he thinks some of the problems are that we're hoping to address in this panel. So, Steve, uh, go ahead. Thank you, Jeff. It's a great uh, honor to be here this morning, and I really appreciate the participation of my esteemed co-panelists. And uh, this, I guess we would say, is a brainstorming session. Uh, it's a session in which we're going to present a problem which is well known to many uh, and which uh, remains in search of a solution or several solutions. And we're eager to have all the input we can possibly get from attendees and from our community. The problem is this. It is that uh, most of our achievements, most of our gains in recent years in web accessibility have been achieved through settlement agreements, most of them uh, uh, under structured negotiation. Uh, it's been a tremendous uh, achievement on our part. Uh, wonderful, uh, creative, and exhausting, uh, and often thankless work has been done by uh, members of ACB, by its affiliates, state chapters, local chapters, individuals, and of course, uh, uh, by the attorneys who work so diligently with us. And I say thankless because in the end, all too many of these settlements while in the short run they may have resulted in significant gains and real opportunities for many people, have all too often in the end resulted uh, in far less and even resulted in the loss of degrees of accessibility which were achieved during the period that the settlement agreements were in effect. Now, settlement agreements uh, are not by and large, although there are several kinds that are, for example, uh, those involving prison litigation where courts take an ongoing supervisory role. Uh, and those cases as, uh, can often last for many years, some 20 or 30, and still ongoing. Uh, other kinds of cases where a federal oversight agency, such as the Department of Justice, uh, or the Department of Education, or, or perhaps the uh, EEO, EEOC, uh, depending on the context, uh, play a role, may have some degree of oversight as well. Uh, there are consent decrees uh, as, for example, in a, uh, uh, cases involving litigation against states for the inaccessibility of state services, which sometimes uh, have resulted in settlements that had a degree of opportunity within them for going back to court if the settlement was not being met or if at the end of the settlement period the substantial progress uh, anticipated uh, by the settlement agreement had not yet, not yet been achieved. But by and large, the settlement agreements are what they sound like. They're agreements. Uh, they basically depend upon the good faith and the capacity 
of the parties to carry them out, uh, and they are time-limited by their terms. Typically, they last for three years, sometimes as much as five, rarely anything more than that. Uh, so what happens is, all too often, the uh, time period runs out, and hopefully a great deal has been achieved, but there's an erosion. Personnel with responsibility in the defendant uh, partner organization change, priorities of the organization change, the individuals benefiting from accessibility change, particularly in uh, uh, educational or medical settings. Uh, uh, and uh, by degrees, uh, an erosion occurs. And it's not always clear how or who to talk to about doing something about it, who has the resources to do that, uh, and who has the authority in a partner organization to take necessary action. So what we're looking to try to do, and, and I should say the way this came to my attention, was through uh, conversations, through talking to people, and through hearing from people who had this problem, that they had accessibility, and one morning they woke up, and it was gone. And whether it was public accommodations, something they had taken for granted in terms of information that they got off the, uh, got off the web every morning, or whether it was uh, services that they had come to depend upon uh, and needed for various aspects and uh, functions in their lives, or even in some cases more critically, when it was employment, when the lack of accessibility for even a couple of days could jeopardize their abilities to do their jobs and potentially even could jeopardize them having the jobs themselves. So in all these settings, we kept hearing from people that they had a problem. There was nobody to go to. And we had this problem. I'm from California. And uh, we had this problem uh, in the case of a couple of very important, one would say, and they were dubbed at that time, rightly so, historic settlements uh, with major nonprofit organizations that resulted uh, in a degree of compliance and considerable progress during the period of time they were in effect, but that once their duration had expired uh, and they were no longer in effect, uh, conditions rapidly deteriorated. So what we have, I guess, to summarize it, is a situation where we have law by contract. Uh, we know that none of these settlement agreements would have been possible without the backdrop uh, and the backup of the ADA, but yet the ADA... Uh, does not really provide a means for dealing with this problem. You're not going to litigate uh, many ADA cases because it's unbelievably expensive and time-consuming and difficult to do so. And even when you do litigate, and you may win uh, under the ADA, but it's not always clear that even under the ADA, you're going to get the remedy that you want. Uh, you'll get, the, you'll get the, the, the victory, but if you don't get the remedy you want, it may be a pyrrhic victory. In any case, so what I felt was necessary since I had done a degree of legal research to see if there was any uh, solution, uh, legal solution, that is to say, any way that uh, partners uh, could be compelled to extend settlement agreements uh, uh, or to enter into uh, uh, continuation agreements, uh, or whether there was any other legal remedy involved or available that could be used. We couldn't find anything, and so decided to uh, at least bring the issue to organizational and community attention uh, by filing this resolution and by uniting a discussion and hopefully getting some of the best minds in our field, including, I'm proud to say, uh, some of the minds that we have on this panel with us today, uh, into the discussion of what it is that can be done. I myself have a number of ideas uh, short of legal change as to what, we can, what can be done in the negotiation process and in the follow-up process, which I'll talk about uh, as time goes on during this meeting. But for the moment, that's, this is our starting point. 
Okay, thank you, Steve, for those introductory remarks. And I'm going to now introduce the rest of the panel and we'll go around to each panelist uh, and, and then we'll come back to Steve. So uh, we have Stuart Seaborn, who is the Managing Director for Litigation for Disability Rights Advocate, and they are headquartered in Berkeley. Stuart is actively involved in a great deal of litigation. Um, many of us, myself included, have known Steve Stewart for a long, long time, and, and the, they do an outstanding job at DRA. Another person that I've known for a good number of years, uh, Michael Nunez, is the senior counsel at Rosenbean, Galvin, and Grunfeld, which is a, a law firm in the disability rights space in San Francisco. Um, our next panelist is uh, Andres Gallegos. Andres is both the uh, chair of the National Council on Disability, and he is a partner in the uh, disability rights law firm from Hughes, Sokol, Piers, Resnick, and Dim in Chicago. He is based here in Chicago. And finally, our final pa panelist is Chris Bell. Many of you will know Chris, if not all of you in this room and many on Zoom as well. Chris is both a board member and a member of the Advocacy Steering and Advocacy Services Committee. So with that, I'm going to start with Stuart Seaborn. Stuart? So uh, thank you, Jeff. Um, this is an issue that we think about on an almost daily basis. Uh, and we, we've been using, and as, as a lot of you in ACB know, We've been using structured negotiation as a tool for remedy, I'd say for at least 20, 25 years, really, starting uh, in the footsteps of ACB and uh, its members, also Laney Feingold, back around the days of the uh, Bank of America ATM uh, structured negotiations work. Um, one of the, I guess, the primary concerns that um ACB members have raised to us is what happens uh so say say you've got a, an agreement instruction negotiation that um there's a remedy to be put in place and uh in a lot of particularly with with access to technology you can get a sense of progress on the remedy at least you know say it's a website at least with the current version of the website uh, in the first, you know, six or seven months of the structure negotiations agreement, um, but things change in terms of updates to web accessibility uh, personnel at the relevant companies, um, and you've got the as 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 Jeff mentioned, you've got the expiration uh, of these structure negotiation agreements, which sometimes are you know they're two years, sometimes they're three years, sometimes they're less. And what happens when um, you know? even if there was a solution put in place that the solution is no longer enforced or not updated with relevant updates to the technology, or there's some, some lingering piece of the solution that is, uh, you know, was never fixed as a result um, of failures to implement the structure negotiations agreement. And we, you know, our job uh, as advocates, particularly in, in the kind of the legal uh, or litigation arm of the disability rights community 
is to to kind of suss out, um, you know, do we need what what kind of leverage can we gather, uh, and what kind of teeth do we have uh, with the various statutes um, we enforce in terms of our advocacy, and um, we we've kind of chalked up a list of uh, the types of cases, types of defendants. Um, where we're more prone to have problems when it comes to uh, the kind of the end of, of an agreement or the end of, of, of structured negotiations. And then earlier on in our in our advocacy, what we could have done or or things that might have might have made things different uh, as advocates um, in terms of uh, those latter uh, years or latter barriers that that uh you know either either weren't fixed or are now no longer uh remedied given all the you know changes in personnel uh, updates and technology and so on and one of the things that we've we've found is that structured negotiations for us tends to be more productive um even on the remedy side when you have a particularly uh savvy defense counsel and a particularly savvy company uh you know things uh, like um, you know, tech companies where the tech company uh, is is big enough um, to um, to be able to employ folks in the disability space um, or to to have counsel on the other side that is familiar with the value of structured negotiations. And I can think of some of these examples. I think that the you know the Netflix um, work uh, that that folks have done. Uh, you know, to uh, both in terms of, of of captioning an audio description was an example where there was at least um, on the, the 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 company side and the council side some impetus um, to really kind of appreciate the value of making changes early on um, and and to do so through structured negotiations. We we saw this uh, also early on um, with uh, bank and credit union websites. Um, in, and, a, and a couple of public entity websites as well. I think we, you know, we had some um, success um, with public entities right around the time that that the uh, you know the, the Laney Feingold book on structured negotiation was making the rounds. And counsel, uh, at least counsel on the defense side, uh, was able to kind of be exposed to the value of structured negotiations. I contrast all of that with uh, some of the work. Uh, that we're doing, or we, we have done over the last 10 or 15 years around settlement with um, companies that are not as familiar with or not, you know, not big enough or sophisticated enough to appreciate the value of, of structure negotiation and the value of incorporating accessibility at the onset uh, so that it can be built into the design as opposed to having to do what they deem as complicated or, uh, you know, expensive fixes after the fact, after, after the, it's been updated for the, the non-disabled public. Um, some of those companies are, are, are they're, they're not small, they're, they're big enough and they should have that, that wherewithal and awareness. But when we get them on the phone uh, in, in, the, in the context of sending the, the initial demand letters and so on, it's not taken as seriously uh, without the threat of litigation. And the, the other category uh, of, of uh, possible defendant are public entities, and I will say we've had much more difficulty in the context of pre-litigation structured negotiation with public entities. Part of that is uh, in, lar in large part due to, in some cases, 
a public entity needs the threat of litigation or even might even need a court order to be able to tell you know its board of supervisors its state legislature uh you know whoever you've got on the other side that that this is something that they should you know there's a policy that needs to be changed it's not just them and the advocates talking uh it's it's the court or the threat of litigation and part of it is there are all kinds of competing factors uh that are competing for their attention and uh with something that does not have that kind of uh, 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 let's just say the 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 kind of shot over the bow uh, of litigation that there may be um, maybe hard to to get it on on the menu of policy items that need to be changed. The the final piece with public entities is that there's a lot of turnover, and I've been in the frustrating position of negotiating something, having somebody new come uh, on the scene at the public entity, and having uh, the the teeth that I thought were in place disappear. Uh, in light of the change in in uh, in official or change in staffing at a at a public entity, I I don't know if this uh, if just is the appropriate time. We've kind of come up with a hybrid approach with uh, where there there are companies that are not as uh, familiar with structure negotiation or public entities that may need the threat of litigation uh, that that we could share uh, that may build some of the the um, I, I would think the the benefits of structured negotiation where you have, you essentially can kick the, the attorneys out of the room and have the, the members of the organizations like the ACB and its affiliates and experts and the actual the people on the ground at the companies uh, or, or the public entities that know what they're doing in the room uh, to actually get something done. And so we have a kind of a hybrid approach that we've we've started to do uh, that, that gets to that um, without losing the threat of litigation but I don't know if you if you want me to talk about that now or 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 move to others on the panel to talk about some of their uh, initial experiences and concerns. Yeah, let's hold off, and we'll we'll definitely have to work that in at the end. I can attest to the issues with public entities having been involved with the DRA and various uh, cities in the state of California. Um, so let's go now to Michael Nunez for your thoughts. Hi, Jeff. So here I am. Um, before I get started, I just wanted to clarify. Um, uh, so I heard Steve at the beginning speaking, but I had some difficulty joining the session. So I wanted to just clarify. Can you speak to the prompt, the question? Steve was the beginning. So you caught everything that was said other than my very brief introduction about oh, okay. bringing Steve on. Okay. So I just want to make sure I, I understand what the current question is though is it to speak to um some of the challenges and and sort of that's correct um, some of the challenges of... to settlements oh structure sure. negotiations okay great uh, exactly. um so sure with respect to um you know settle uh well structured negotiations in particular i have worked on some at um, disability rights advocates when i was there as well as some at uh, my current firm rosenbein galvin and grunfeld and um you know Structured negotiations can work really well in some situations. I definitely, you know, have found that um, they sort of getting them on the books can be a little slower sometimes than um, litigation. Um, and sometimes it's the other way around, but it, it can depend, depending on the circumstances, um, sort of getting to agreement with the threat of a date certain for litigation or without the threat of, you know, the court kind of checking in on things can sort of allow the process to sort of expand to fill whatever time 
um, is given to it. So that can be one of the challenges that I've seen. Um, I think another challenge is with respect to the term that, you know, was one of the issues that I know Steve has raised concerns about before, which is that basically um, in the structured negotiation process, sometimes the length of the agreement um, ends up being perhaps a little bit shorter than the plaintiffs, um, than the advocates might want it to be. And there may not be any sort of monitoring for compliance after that term is over. You know, maybe there's no sorts of reporting. Maybe um, you know, there are, but they're not quite up to snuff in terms of what folks might want. Um, I've had the same experience as Stuart where getting structured negotiations with a county or other public entity um, can be really difficult. They maybe have a policy of not entering into structured negotiations or perhaps their board of supervisors or whoever the authority is that makes the decision on whether or not to engage in a structured negotiation just isn't quite ready to focus on that or engage in the process unless they have something that forces the issue to the top of their plate. Um, so that has been a challenge as well. Um, I think another challenge that can come up can be sort of um, a messaging issue. Uh, so um, I think that, you know, when there is bona fide litigation and when there is um, like a sort of an official settlement, you know, whether it's a class settlement or some sort of policy settlement that um, has, you know, maybe statewide or national import, um, the attention um, really can get drawn to it because of the circumstances and the, you know, the advocates involved have um, these kind of concrete things to point to um, that maybe can get a little bit more press attention. So folks um, in the community kind of get to learn a little bit more easily about what rights have been secured, what to expect from whatever agreement was struck. I think when st structured negotiation agreements get um, negotiated, you know, they might have great contents and, you know, regard, you know, setting aside the issue of the term for a minute, but sometimes folks maybe just don't find out about them quite as much because they do not necessarily grab the same level of attention as litigation can grab. So um, there might be a little bit more confusion about what the agreement's securing, like what, what um, gains have been achieved, how long it might last, um, who to turn to for guidance or assistance with ensuring that the agreement's enforced. So I, I think that information and, and sort of um, messaging can be a challenge as well. I'll uh, stop there, Jeff, and I'm sure we'll have another opportunity to to speak more about it as the panel proceeds. Okay, thank you. So we'll now turn to Andres Gallegos. Uh, thank you, and and I apologize for um, jumping on here late. Uh, we've been using structured negotiation in our national disability rights practice uh, for the past uh, fifteen years. Um, we've we have mixed results with it, right? Um, listening to what Michael said, and I imagine what. What Stuart has has commented on. When when it when it works, it works well. Um, but the problem is 
there's a for us it seems to be there's a learning curve uh, that we encounter that educating the other side, whether it's municipality, whether it's the healthcare system, um, on what structured negotiation is and, and what the benefits are in, in using it, right? And the great benefit is that uh, you're, it's not as expensive uh, than it would be if we litigated those particular issues. And we're able to get to the core issues immediately instead of getting involved in, in, in litigation. Typically, you were dealing with motions to dismiss immediately in all kinds of of uh, of, of motion work uh, that really delays uh, our ability to get to the core issues uh, in a particular case and which increases the cost of litigation. And so what we try to sell the other side on is, look, it's we prefer that you use your money to address these issues instead of fighting us in terms of whether or not you are liable or not liable. Um, but we've used it successfully with with healthcare systems uh, to address very comprehensively the need to make their facilities and services accessible for people with disabilities. Uh, case in point, we used it uh, 10 years ago with Northwestern uh, Medical System to make all of their inpatient rooms accessible uh, for people with disabilities and all of their physician clinics accessible as well. Um, and that went well, but it was a five-year structured negotiation, uh, which is considerably long. Right, uh, there was just so many issues that were involved uh, that you know we we stayed in collaboration with with the healthcare system throughout the way. Um, we've also used structured negotiation immediately after having filed the lawsuit, and then we stay the lawsuit then to engage in that process. And I kind of like that, right? Because it, for me, it's the best of, best of both worlds. Because if there's a delay, if they're not cooperative in terms or being forthright and disclosing information to us, then we have the court still that has oversight of the case. We can turn to the judge on these uh, discovery issues, if you will, and try to get them to push it along. And it also precludes these negotiations from going on so long as it did in the Northwestern case for five years, because uh, the court's not going to tolerate that, right? And, and we did that very successfully in the city of Pekin uh, case that we just talked about. We filed the lawsuit. Um, uh, a class action lawsuit for damages and injunctive relief for the public rights of way. But then shortly after filing it, we were, because there was absolute liability, there was no, no question liability, um, the city agreed to a structured negotiation process and we stayed litigation. We're quickly able to get into the, the merits of the, what a settlement agreement would look like, what a consent decree ultimately would look like. And that's really why that's really the preferred method for me now in utilizing structured negotiation. Follow the lawsuit and then try to implement structured negotiation and try to get to the core issues at hand. Okay, thank you. So just, if this were English class, we're gonna do a little foreshadowing. So we're gonna now turn to Chris Bell and then we'll go back to Stuart and Steve after that. So Chris? Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Um, so I have, absolutely no experience with structured negotiation. So that's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, I think we have to recognize that change is constant, uh, no matter what context you're talking about, whether you're talking about the environment or you're talking about the economy or whatever you're talking about. And certainly that's going to include uh, settlements. But even beyond that, and you know, in the 19... 
1950s to enforce the uh, school desegregation, uh, we had all these desegregation lawsuits and uh, busing remedies. Well, where is that now? You don't, you don't, you don't hear anything about that. In the 60s and 70s, we had uh, suits to deinstitutionalize these terrible snake pits uh, for people with uh, developmental disabilities. Back then, it was called mental retardation and people with mental illness, uh, all kinds of exposés. A lot of those institutions have been closed down and people were uh, out. Um, and then, of course, we had to try to create home and community-based services. And even though we had the Olmstead decision in 1999, um, which certainly uh, has been important in uh, pushing for home and community-based services, we still have a, uh, a mandate under uh, Medicaid uh, that favors uh, uh, nursing home placement. And so, you know, we're still, we're still struggling with that. So um, a lot of these things, it seems to me, uh, come down to trying to uh, create um, political and legal momentum together. In other words, making the issue in the public forum. I'm thinking of the analogy of mothers against drunk driving. Um, you know, it used to be drunk driving was, was no big deal. Uh, and uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving came around and they made it a very big deal. And uh, probably all the states changed their laws and increased the penalties for drunk driving. And uh, although drunk driving is uh, still a problem, obviously, and driving under uh, various under impairments is still a problem, the, the legal uh, structure has changed. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's part of what we're talking about is we can change legal structures and we can change legal policies, but then they, the application of them does not always uh, apply in individual circumstances um, because the people that are in charge of making decisions at a local uh, level, or, uh, for example, um, just aren't knowledgeable uh, um, don't have uh, necessarily the knowledge or experience as to why something happened. Um, you know, I think about infrastructure, and we mentioned the, there's a lot of lawsuits about failure to have accessible public rights of ways. Um, uh, in Minneapolis, there's a street corner, and there's a curb ramp. Uh, I think it's a lawful curb ramp. Right at the top of it is this big, huge utility pole. And there's no way that anybody in a wheelchair, uh, it's, in fact, it's almost impossible to walk around the damn thing. Uh, you know, and you wonder, okay, so which came first, the utility pole or the curb ramp? Uh, but clearly, somebody had no idea <laughs> as, to, as to how this, the system is supposed to work. Um, so uh, I guess I'm, I'm a proponent in the public sector Title II, 504 litigation realm, if possible, uh, if you have a good case and you have the wherewithal, the means, um, to pursue it, not to settlement, but to adjudication. Um, we did that uh, with the great help of DRA in North Carolina in absentee voting. Uh, we got a, a final judgment uh, requiring accessible uh, voting, including 
uh, right to get a ballot electronically, right to market electronically with uh, accessible technology, and right to return it electronically. And using uh, standards that are created under the uniform, uh, I always forget the acronym, it's UOCAVA, Uniform Overseas Citizens Voting Assistance Act or something like that, um, <clears throat> where, where they allow uh, that for uh, those voters, but not for disabled voters. Uh, you see it in litigation, uh, as I mentioned, against uh, cities for failing to have accessible uh, sidewalks. Um, but, you know, there is no great uh, solution, even when you win, and even when, <clears throat> for example, the Department of Justice in its litigation against uh, the city of Chicago a uh, suit brought by ACB of Metropolitan Chicago and disability rights advocates. Um, you know, they got a, a wonderful uh, legal victory of finding that the city had violated the ADA in 504 and that the Department of Justice was entitled to damages. Uh, we don't have the remedy yet. And at some point, uh, there's going to be a very high <laughs> plaintiff's attorney's fee bill. But, you know, all of these things, none of these things necessarily uh, fix the problem. And, uh, you know, I don't have, I don't know whether you can do RICO litigation, for example. I don't know enough about RICO. Um, but I think that uh, part of the idea is to get people motivated, like the Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and then tie it into the, into the litigation. And uh, that's my poor excuse for thoughts on it. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Okay, let's go back to Stuart. Stuart, you were starting to uh, talk about how you had developed a hybrid model. Let's hear some more about that. Sure, and I, I think there is a lot of similarity to the hybrid I was discussing and what Andres described in terms of a combination of a filed case and litigation and structured negotiations. I, I'd like to just, and, and this is, I mean, this this ties a little bit, uh, Chris, to what you were saying about change and, and for us, it's evolution. We liked a lot of the things we saw coming out of structured negotiation in particularly for DRA in, in the early days when we had you know companies and counsel on the other side that were very open to considering it, having having those uh, who were educated around structured negotiation, including uh, you know as I mentioned, kind of kicking the attorneys out of the room, spending a lot less on both sides on the on the attorneys and the, the just the, the the ups and downs of litigation that takes a heck of a lot of time, and just getting the the right people in the room. Who, if they're you know if they're truly acting good faith and willing to focus on barriers, particularly where there's something that that technology can be used to overcome the barrier, that that's uh, that has been helpful. So we wanted to keep that uh, that th those benefits that we that you know kind of evolved out of structured negotiation, but really deal with some of these hurdles that uh, all of you have mentioned, including the you know lack of, of teeth uh, monitoring, um, you know what happens when particularly public entities aren't aren't really taking it seriously enough uh and kind of combine um you know the leverage we get uh with litigation uh with with that approach uh and so we we have in this hybrid model been filing cases in litigation taking a, a pretty um I, i'd say more typical approach we do we we always ask the other side if it's willing to fix something uh, where, you know, if it's willing to fix the barriers at issue and we give them a clear roadmap on how to do that. Um, so we, we, we often try to have a sense of the remedy long before uh, we notify the other side. And, uh, you know, occasionally 
the remedy is fixed, particularly if it's a, a more straightforward technological barrier. Sometimes, you know, if it's making the website accessible, they can actually do that. And then we just check, we just keep monitoring it. Doesn't happen very often. Um, and then when, when, you know, when there's delay, when there's uh, lack of clarity on a commitment, um, lack of clarity on a timeline for a fix, we will often go ahead and litigate. And there's a real benefit in terms of making people aware, in addition to getting the right people uh, at the table, there's a splash that comes, you know, there's, there's often media that comes with the filing and members of the community can actually become more aware and really kind of hone in on what, what barriers are, are relevant and also what, you know, what, uh, what their needs are going forward. Um, and that, that allows us to, you know, really kind of, of, uh, kind of put front and center for, uh, the other side, who's, who's impacted and, and what the barriers are. I, I like the idea of, you know, keeping a litigation calendar open. And so, you know, sometimes we try to, uh, you know, we, we go into the right after, uh, you know, the case is filed, we, we kind of come, come with a proposal or, you know, we can, we, you know, we, we're certainly happy to engage in something that looks like structured negotiations. So to have, have the combo components of structured negotiations, but it's got a timeline attached to it. And that timeline means there has to be meaningful uh, action taken on, on, on either resolution or at least, uh, you know, have a significant meeting of the minds on resolution or else uh, the case will continue to be litigated. That, that has happened uh, a few times. We, we, we did this, uh, we, we had a case involving access for kids with diabetes in the New York City schools. We did this after starting trying structured negotiations against the um, ADP, the, the giant kind of the software uh, for payroll and HR, um, but then had, you know, end up having to file a case. I've noticed that that does a couple of things. One is it, you might get the more educated counsel in the room because the, you know, once the case is filed, they may, they may be looking either beyond their typical, uh, uh, in-house counsel or even beyond their, the, 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 um, uh, external counsel that, that is not as familiar with these kinds of issues. They might be more, uh, apt to hire somebody who is, who is more sophisticated on these issues. It also helps as we mentioned before, get the decision makers in the room, or at least people who can direct uh, the those um, who are making the, the technical changes, and then to get to the point about um, you know what happens, whether it's a settlement agreement or a court order. One of the flexibilities that we like, particularly when there's an organization or there's a significant number of people that are impacted, and it could be uh, a class action is that in the context of negotiating with pen, pending litigation, you can push for either a consent decree, a court enforceable settlement that takes the form of a court order, or even if you're doing a contract type settlement, you can, if you, you know, the, the more leverage you have in litigation, the more they think they're under threat of litigation, the more you can get in terms of what court enforceability looks like. So you could have a, a, a even even a standard contract settlement where the court maintains jurisdiction for purposes of enforcement. So it takes the form of a court order. Like the court kind of stamps, you know, stamps its own uh, imprimatur on on the order, so that you know the the, the court and the parties know nobody's going away. That there is uh, there's something that can be done with the court if there isn't follow up. The last piece that that we've we've started to look at more recently, and we we pulled. I was in uh, in preparing for this, I pulled a couple settlement agreements uh, that have more teeth at the end of the settlement agreement. And one of the things that we're looking at is how we can include in the exit 
not not just a time period for exiting the settlement and having the court lose its jurisdiction if you're not you know if it's even if it's structured negotiations if you don't have the court having having the the exit limited to a time period but also some sort of meaningful measurable tools uh that include either milestones or actually a test for what the covered entity you know whether it's a public entity or a private entity has to do to get out of the settlement and this the 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 one that, that comes to mind uh actually is is from some of the voting work we did in New York City and this is around access to poll sites and accessible uh ballot marking devices so before the absentee stuff that folks heard about this morning uh but one of the things I liked about the the finale of, of that is that in the in the language around how you know how the the covered entity gets out of the case there was actually you know there had to be certain uh, milestones met so that's something we're considering you know even if it's a settlement agreement and it's not something that comes about by court order can you write something in at the back end where the community uh either has a chance to review experts have a chance to review there's some sort of of, of approach requiring testing or milestones or some, something that the, that the covered entity has actually has incentive to keep things clean keep things fixed so it can get out of the settlement that that's something we've been considering the the final piece on this hybrid that I don't I don't have a good example of yet because it's something that that we're we're focusing on I'd say in the last six or seven months is having a, a kind of a concrete outreach component of our work set up around the time of of you know say say the the fix is put in place between the time the fix is put in place and the time the settlement expires so that we are actually reaching out to community members and seeing what their experiences are actually like. So say, you know, say the maintenance hasn't been done. We had a case involving um, the tactile input on point of sale devices. And we realized that we, you know, we kind of monitored it up to a point. And then, uh, you know, in, in the latter half of the settlement, implementation just slowed down. And so we, we, we people in other parts, it was a California case, other parts of California who hadn't even had access to the accessible point of sale device, we had no idea. So the, the 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 last piece really is and again this is something that is that's new for us uh so we're we're trying to incorporate it's not in many existing settlement agreements yet is having us at, on the DRA side and the advocacy side do outreach that is that is already spelled out in advance uh and have you know have our kind of contacts with the community on calendar so that people can be made aware look this is happening how's it how's it going in your community how's you know how how's the implementation going so then we actually have something to say when we go back to say, look, you know, you you, you should you, you covered entity shouldn't be off the hook yet. All right, thank you. So, Steve, coming back to you now for your additional ideas. Yes. Uh, well, uh, since uh, I proposed this resolution a year and a half ago, I spent a lot of time investigating what settlement agreements work in the long run and what don't, and what strategies are effective uh, in making them work. Uh, unfortunately for me, Stuart has stolen all of my ideas. Uh, he's basically, he's basically uh, implemented uh, and articulated very well a number of the strategies that I was going to propose. So I'm left, uh, since I don't believe we have need of repetition, to go on to a couple of uh, ideas which uh, are in, in some way t tangential to, but more importantly are supportive of the strategy that Stuart is talking about and some observations in that regard. Uh, number one, first of all, uh, the uh, nothing uh, in the case of... Uh, a complaint against a public entity, it really is necessary to file suit almost always. And again, Stuart has articulated the reasons for that. Uh, uh, and uh, it's something which uh, some people are, are, are afraid to do, uh, but it, it's really necessary. And it often is the beginning point for serious negotiations. 
and as importantly, as the beginning point for the involvement of any kind of third-party oversight uh, uh, court, independent monitor, regulatory agency, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, now, once a settlement agreement is in effect, no matter whether it came uh, to be as a result strictly of negotiations or of negotiations precipitated by litigation or negotiations uh, overseen by parties who were drawn in through the litigation. Uh, uh, once that, that is done, it's necessary to have from the very beginning uh, as full and free and open uh, consultative uh, uh, and, uh, and dialogue process between the two parties as possible. And this, uh, as again, uh, Stuart and Andre were suggesting, implies uh, a new and heightened role for a council. You can't necessarily expect the individuals, the students, the employees, the healthcare uh, uh, patients, uh, the customers in the uh, retail facility. You can't expect them necessarily uh, to be uh, fully active as negotiators uh, and, and monitors of the legal aspects of the settlements. That's not what their lives are about. That's not what they're trained to do. That's not what they've asked us to help them do. And that's, although some, in some cases they are very, very uh, helpful and useful and eager, in other cases they're not. And it's, it's not, I think, appropriate for us to force them into that role as a condition for representing and supporting them in their aspirations for equality. So the questions of how that gets done, how the contact gets established and continued, what kind of committees, what kind of regular meetings, what kind of milestones, uh, what uh, feedback to know if the milestones are being met, uh, what kind of uh, 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 activity can be undertaken in the event that there's some disagreement, the milestones, uh, whether, whether the milestones are being met or not, uh, what, what happens in a case like that. In other words, something which covers all the, uh, all the uh, nuts and bolts of actual implementation of the settlement agreement, something that leaves as little or uh, hopefully nothing uh, to chance in that regard. Another idea that I have, which no one has talked about much, is putting into the settlement agreement itself uh, not merely the uh, technical goals uh, or even the objectives that are to be achieved within the timeline, within the duration of the settlement agreement, but also putting into it some long-term goals in terms of some uh, 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 acceptance by the partner of the fact that uh, accessibility is a worthy goal, is something that is and ought to be part of their organizational policy, not only for the sake of and for the duration of a settlement agreement, but in the long term and for the sake of their of their overall uh, commitments uh, in the area of their responsibility to their constituencies. And getting that into settlement agreements, uh, I think, is very important in itself because it can be pointed to. It's not merely rhetorical. Uh, 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 it's uh, something of great importance. And as I said, let's see uh, more of that. Uh, uh, again, uh, now, in terms of leverage, uh, we often note, sadly, that we don't have a lot of leverage in many of these negotiating situations. They would be partners that deep pocketed uh, if they're not represented by attorneys who are knowledgeable about uh, accessibility issues, uh, or if they are represented by attorneys who are knowledgeable about accessibility issues, but only for the purpose of blocking accessibility. And that, that kind of attorney has grown in numbers over the years. And there are unfortunately a lot of them now who are all too sophisticated, but not sophisticated in a positive way. Uh, when you're dealing with a situation like that, what leverage do you have? Well, maybe you have some extra legal leverage, and I haven't got time to go into that here. 
but uh, we can talk about the possibility of adverse publicity. We can talk about the possibilities of ag- agitation uh, with with shareholders if it's a company, or with pl- uh, political uh, agitation uh, in the case of a government agency. We have, for example, in uh, our state in California, a situation uh, where a lot of leverage could be obtained if the state attorney general who is responsible for representing state agencies in all litigation, including, of course, accessibility litigation, if the Attorney General would take uh, a, a more positive attitude with respect to implementing accessibility, given that it is already state policy. We've seen cases which have dragged on for years and years and years where the Attorney General's office was, frankly, uh, I won't say complicit, but I will say passive, in delaying tactics by the state agencies, uh, which resulted only in the undue deferral of results, the nature of which was pretty much foreordained from the very outset, given what the law really is, uh, and given what the history of similar cases has been. So you might want to look in your states uh, uh, as to whether or not there is any centralized state authority, at least in matters of of suits against state agencies, uh, who can be pressured uh, to adopt a pro-accessibility stance with respect to the litigation advice they give to and the representation they afford to their clients. So also on the local level as well. Uh, I don't want to take too much more time now because I want to I want to uh, give our other panelists a chance too. But uh, I'm eager to have more ideas from more people, to hear more stories from more people. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Steve. So before we open up for questions, uh, Michael, Andres, Chris, any additional thoughts on what you've been hearing over the last few minutes? From- yes, this is Michael. All right, go ahead. Um, so I just wanted to jump in and underscore what I think is the great importance of robust monitoring for any settlement agreement, consent decree, you know, negotiated agreement through the structured negotiation process. Um, so my current work at Rosenbeam, Galvin, and Grunfeld, a big part of it focuses on enforcing and monitoring compliance with um, these large um, either remedial orders or in some cases or consent decrees in other cases uh, with respect to correctional facilities. And I will say that, you know, the cases I work on um, in, the most are about sort of access to mental health treatment and access to ADA accommodations in the California state prison system. And we have a very, very robust monitoring process in those cases in the California, uh, sorry, in the Coleman case, which is about access to mental health treatment, we have a, th- um, a third party en- entity um, or, or person, I guess you would technically say, called a special master who is charged with um, sort of officially monitoring and examining the prisons policies regarding, um, you know, all aspects of providing mental health treatment and equal access to people with mental health disabilities in the prison system. And that special master is a court official that works for the court and not for the defendants um, or for us and gets to have complete and total access to the prison system's records, to be able to interview, you know, staff at any time, to interview class members, to interview, um, to interview, you know, both mental health as well as custodial staff, 
um, to go visit the institutions, any institutions at any time. Um, and we also, as the plaintiff's counsel in that case, get um, you know access to our clients, as well as access to many records that the special master gets access to, as well as the opportunity to accompany the special master on some of their monitoring tours that they conduct as a regular part of their monitoring of the case. And on the other case that I work on, the Armstrong case, um, there is no third party special master, but we get even more robust access where we get to interview the correctional staff, we get to interview educational staff, ADA staff, um, our class members at any time get to tour the facilities. Um, we have the opportunity to access all sorts of documents that are um, available, records in the prisons, um, all for the sake of making sure that they're doing what the court ordered them to do or what they agreed to do affirmatively through, you know, the consent decrees that we have in place. And I will tell you that, um, you know, through this process, we have often identified, you know, numerous instances in numerous ways of non-compliance. And once you've, you know, identified it and have evidence to show that the non-compliance is happening, move the ball forward towards getting the compliance to getting the accessibility that, you know, we secured, that the court ordered, that the other side agreed to, and that our clients deserve. Um, I, I think it would be really wonderful to see more of this kind of robust monitoring get kind of pushed into or exported into the other context that we're talking about today. You know, I was talking about it in the context of correctional facilities, but, um, you know, more monitoring, I think, of other agreements would be wonderful to see that move into the technology space, to see that move into the, um, you know, kiosks, websites, um, mobile apps, and other sorts of um, accessibility issues in the healthcare arena, and, you know, um, transportation systems that, you know, are so important to members of this community and the disability community more generally. Um, so I just wanted to underscore the importance of, of the monitoring piece, Jeff. So I'll turn it back over to you. Okay, thank you. Chris, Andres, anything from either of you? Yeah, this is Andres. Uh, you know, another benefit of the of the hybrid um, model that we're talking about is that uh, when different milestones are, are required to be accomplished, typically we have uh, the defendant to notify us counsel, plaintiff's counsel, um, on the completion of those milestones. With the hybrid model, we always include the judge being uh, informed as well uh, under the premise that um, while the defendant may lie to us, they're not gonna lie to the judge, or they're gonna think twice about it, right? And so ensuring that not just a copy is delivered to the judge, but that it's addressed to the judge and us makes a meaningful difference, I think. And then the, the importance of having community involvement in monitoring is critical. Um, we always have the plaintiffs and, and the type of claims that we bring, uh, the injunctive relief that we're looking for is, be and we have the standing because our, our clients continue to use the healthcare system, continue to live in the in the city and therefore use the, um, the public rights of way. And so that's how we help monitor. Um, but at the same time, uh, we're very careful that if we end up with uh, a, a private settlement, that we simply don't have a breach of contract remedy. Uh, 
uh, if there's a violation on, on one of the obligations under the agreement that, that we can file, we re- reserve the right to file a new claim under the uh, non-discrimination laws in the event that there is a breach of that and not just limited to the breach of contract. And then the last thing I'll say is I talked about the learning curve on not only on structured negotiations, uh, very early on what we found uh, when we're dealing with private counsel, we're uh, negotiating on, with a healthcare system is that we also had to inform and educate uh, defense counsel on what their obligations are under the ADA, under Section 504, et cetera, because they're typically attorneys that have uh, employment discrimination experience, but not public accommodation experience. That's changed just based on the volume of, of actions that we've had over the years. And we seem to find on the other side, the same uh, national council representing these healthcare systems and and other defendants. So it's gotten a little bit better in terms of that. Great. Thank you. Chris, anything from you? Nope. Okay. So we're going to uh, open Jeff, up Jeff, questions. Jeff, we're going to do... Jeff, just one more thing, if I may, quickly. Ah, Is that okay. all right? All right. Steve, I, do, I, 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 I wanted to... Uh, also, thank thank Andres for his wonderful work. But uh, Chris mentioned before the possibility of some statutes that could be utilized for leverage in these cases, and I don't think RICO is one. But uh, at least until this term, Supreme Court decisions, I thought that the False Claims Act might be one. Uh, and in light of those decisions, I'm not yet sure the dust has not cleared. But I do wonder about uh, comparable state false claims uh, statutes that could be used in cases, particularly. Uh, where, uh, where governmental agencies or governmental agency contractors have failed to achieve their obligations under settlement agreements. This is Stuart. Just to follow up on that, there is, an, and you will probably follow the case involving California false claims, so, so somewhat parallel uh, requirements in the California system around access to uh, the state parks uh, reservation websites. Um, there, there, there's a significant amount of additional leverage there. I think um, we, you know, we're, we're waiting to see in the context of uh, litigation and even, even policy advocacy how that leverage plays out. But it's certainly something worth adding to the menu uh, as folks consider where leverage lies. One benefit to those, um, it's, been, it's been a very difficult thing for us. I think of all the touchscreen work that we've done um, and, and we, where we've paired uh, with ACB and others, um, where there's a third-party vendor involved, and how do you get the non-public-facing third-party vendor to be as cognizant uh, of what's going on, the importance of, of enforcing these rights, uh, when it may not have as much, you know, there's still some theories for liability for third-party vendors, but it, it doesn't have as much of its kind of, uh, you know, feet to the fire uh, as the, the public-facing entity. And these false claims, uh, um, uh, potentially, you know, around state false claims act uh, uh, litigation or threats of litigation, can help hold that that third party's feet to the fire. So it's something certainly I I'm, I I at least you know we're all in favor of expanding that menu of leverage options, um, and particularly as as it it you know it's been difficult for us over the years to bring these third parties into the fold that was you know in, in the the kind of height of our structured negotiations work that was one of the real benefits because we could actually bring the you know the third party vendor kind of underneath the tent and have everybody work it out um some of those vendors are a little bit hard to persuade now and, and that this may be another leverage or kind of you know menu item. 
Zoom first, but do we have anyone who would be willing to run the mic around the room? Oh, great, super. So is there anyone, Mitch, you'll be second, unless there's no Zoom any people. We do have a couple on Zoom. We'll okay, we're going to take one Zoom, and then we'll go to Mitch, and then we'll take the second Okay, Zoom. we'll go to Jewel. Yes, good afternoon. Um, I believe it's afternoon right now. <laughs> um, I'm going to try to keep this brief, but I would be happy to speak to somebody in detail. Um, this question regards homelessness. So um, in brief, I did experience homelessness, and one of the issues that a lot of people with disabilities um, experience when homeless is that shelters can deny them um, based on discrimination and accessibility. Many shelters are not accessible to people with disabilities or do not have the um, appropriate um, accommodations available. Um, for example, somebody in a wheelchair, their shelters on upstairs. Um, and also discrimination. Uh, when I was homeless, I was denied time and time again by Catholic Charities and on the basis that I was an insurance liability and my husband also. So my question speaks to how to address a situation where the individuals affected are very hard to keep up with because they're constantly on the move because they don't have a home. But the whole issue is that they don't have shelter. They don't have housing because of situations related to their disability. Um, and how do we fight an issue like that? Um, like I was part of a class action lawsuit that failed because the other individuals were lost in homelessness, like they couldn't find them. Um, so the class action lawsuit was dropped because I was the only one left. Okay, anyone care to attack Jules question there? So this is Stuart, I can be very brief, but that, so in our work, and unfortunately, I think this, you know, we were, were, we're more the norm than not. We're, we we were slow to kind of catch up uh, in terms of work with folks who are uh, unhoused and, and homeless uh, and applying kind of the coverage and the rights of the ADA and state law to those those groups. Part of it, uh, Jewel, as as you mentioned, has to do with the the kind of transitional nature. And it's you know, these these even even a structured negotiation takes time and it's really hard to maintain those contacts. I think there's there's been a wave of increased advocacy around um, access to shelters, homeless sweeps, even uh, for folks, um, a lot of folks with disabilities in California uh, who are on Social Security disability insurance or um, or SSI live in vehicles, and there's been some litigation on behalf of people with with uh, disabilities living in their vehicles uh, in in California on on the West Coast. So I think there there is a, a wave of advocacy that's been happening in the last three or four years. It's very difficult to expand that to other states, um, in part because of, of um, yeah, the, the, the kind of the newness of the issue uh, in terms of, of the courts. There's there is a good Ninth Circuit decision which covers essentially the, the Western states. Um, there isn't there isn't that much yet, um, at least from from our perspective and some of the other jurisdictions we serve. But it is something I think that you will see on on the horizon. The issue you raise in terms of how to keep, uh, you know, the community involved and how to even even to maintain standing in these cases is very difficult. Uh, it requires a heck of a lot of outreach. And for us, with with offices in in Berkeley and New York, and only one person 
uh, in the Midwest, it's been very difficult to do that. And then for that reason, we've been limited geographically in terms of where we can work on these cases. The only comment I might add is, uh, Jules, is if, if it were me and I was in that position, probably the first entity I would turn to for some potential action would be my protection advocacy state entity. So I don't know what state you're in, but there's one in every state. And, and they are pretty good in this arena, um, by and large. So um, Mitch is next. Um, in my almost 14 years as LA City's ADA compliance officer, and subsequently, because we have a very close friend who just retired, she was like number three in the LA City Attorney's Office. Uh, LA, and I think it's the case for many, many other uh, public sector jurisdictions, they do a cost-benefit analysis and they tend to be more willing to settle than not. Um, I don't know, and I'd be interested in your experience, but, but there were lots of cases that uh, I was involved with and that I was aware of subsequently where the, the city said, oh, we're just going to settle this because it'll cost too much. The one case that I'm aware of where an entity did not settle was a, essentially a wrongful death case with LA Metro. Uh, I testified as an expert witness and Metro chose not to uh, settle. They litigated and the family was asking for 12 or 13 million. And by the time we got done, the uh, jury settled for seven, uh, asked for 17 million. So it, uh, there, is a, there is that factor involved. The other quick comment is that uh, Donna was, I think, a secondary plaintiff in the Kaiser settlement. Our Kaiser in Pasadena, they've addressed a lot of the physical access issues. However, the kiosks still, we cannot uh, check in using those kiosks. And because there's turnover, uh, we frequently have to re-educate the folks at the front desk every time we go in to fill a prescription or to get a test or something. And, and so the comment that one of the attorneys made earlier about ongoing monitoring is absolutely essential. And, and the person who's actually representing us has to be strong and not all that willing to settle until unless we get what we want. Thank you. This is Stuart. Just to piggyback on that, that that uh, that settlement and other healthcare settlements are what are are, are some of the things that prompted us uh, to enter back in these conversations. Because I, I think uh, your experiences uh, and your 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 family's experiences are not alone, uh, particularly with some of these California healthcare settlements. And that is one of the things we're looking at now is how to how to revisit these issues uh, and then focus on monitoring in ways that, particularly on the back end, look at uh, you know all of the components. Of the fix as opposed to just a few and how to keep the outreach going uh you know so, so that it's planned from the onset uh so we can actually report back once we have monitoring on problems uh with some legitimacy to let let uh, the, the covered entities know that they shouldn't be off the hook hey next we'll go to dawn hi um in the last uh, um, um conference you guys had you said disability discrimination is injury in itself is that proven in any court system so, Don, this is Stuart. So that that's one of the things that we've almost taken for granted in in the context of, uh, particularly when it comes to to so the state disability laws, um, but also for for standing to sue for injury. That discrimination is is an injury in itself. 
the idea is actually, and that's that's for the last you know thirty years. What whether you can quantify an injury is something you know for monetary damages is something completely separate, and that uh, the, the monetary damages piece has taken a real hit this uh, the past couple of years under the Cummings decisions. Uh, you could still have uh, actual or compensatory damages where there's uh, showing under federal law that there is some sort of intentional discrimination. So essentially, the covered entity was aware of the barrier, uh, knew what it needed to do to fix it, and then just went ahead and kept doing it anyway. Uh, but it's really difficult to show the actual losses uh, in terms of monetary relief coming from that uh, that that incident of discrimination because you can no longer, in a lot of cases, claim emotional distress for disability discrimination violations. But at the state level, where you have uh, often statutory damages, so essentially there is, a, there is, there is uh, in California, for example, if you can prove discrimination uh, under our, our state disability laws, you're entitled to a minimum statutory damages amount monetary-wise. And that, that is, is because the state over the years has recognized that discrimination itself is an injury and it's actually quantified at least you know to a minimum statutory damages amount that that injury should be compensated even that now is facing some threat um in, in the context of the kiosk litigation uh, and that's one of the things i was very pleased to see the disability community kind of unify around with these letters to the court and amicus briefs uh but it's still it's still to be decided but in terms of discrimination as an, in, an injury to give you a right to go to court that that is still there so shall i go ahead jeff Thanks. So my, uh, my question is that we've made several efforts in ACB to create structured negotiation environments with issues. And what attorneys have told us is that they're unwilling to get involved in the structured negotiation process unless there appears to be uh, a threshold available uh, for attorneys um, to recover a sufficient number uh, or a quantity of money to make it worth their while. For cases that appear not to meet the threshold in structured negotiations, do you have any recommendations for us um, as advocates uh, about how best to move cases like that forward beyond simply a complaint to the Department of Justice? So this is Stuart, I can start and, and others feel free to join in. I'm, I guess I'm not really sure what the threshold uh, is that the folks are, 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 are telling you about. If there's, for, for us, if there's any kind of barrier that, that whether it's a to access to technology barrier or physical barrier, uh, something in the policies that is, that is going to need to be fixed through something, whether it's a structure negotiation or, or litigation, and we can demonstrate that, 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 that that barrier itself is discrimination. So it, it, it excludes people from a program or service, gives them a different benefit or a lesser benefit uh, of a program or a service, or denies them, you know, some sort of meaningful access to the benefit. So like in the voting context, you know, having someone help you vote is considered not meaningful access as opposed to independent voting, private independent voting. So if it's something like that, uh, and it's a, a, a large enough public entity or private entity that can control the fix to that, then that, you know, in a very loose, uh, loosely worded phrasing, that that that's that meets the threshold to consider relief through structured negotiations or otherwise. So it's hard for me to, to say what what the um, what the attorneys are looking for. The statutes themselves allow for recovery 
uh, for attorney's fees. And so we, you know, most of the folks doing this work that rather than seeking some sort of contingency or, you know, some sort of, of, of damages, uh, portion of a damages award, they'll actually use the statutes that allow for, for attorneys to recover their fees and costs when they prevail. Uh, and so it has to be, you know, it has to be a good case in that sense. There has to be a clear barrier with a clear fix, uh, but there's prevailing party attorney's fees. And in most structured negotiation agreements that have been successful, there is some recovery written into the agreement. So essentially that if there's a change made as a result of whatever the negotiation is, if there's a fix made, that there's some compensation paid for the hours uh, and resources put into that fix and the attorneys. Now, the, the agreements vary, but that, that's very common in those structured negotiation agreements. Okay, thank you very much, Stuart, for that answer. We've run out of time. I and want Jeff, to thank I... my presenters. I want to thank, who's our streamer, Monica? Our streamer is Jane. Okay, I want to thank you. I want to thank Monica. And I'm going to turn it over, and I want to thank all of you for coming whether it's Zoom or in the room. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.